0: Right, so welcome back to another episode of Leftist Labor History. My name is Nate, and I'm the host. Anyway, so this episode is going to be about the uh, post-World War II period, um, about 1950 to about 1980, and I I finally des- I, I finally decided to split up an episode into two parts just because I wasn't able to come up with a nice, pithy way to combine the different themes of this era. Um, and I've been going chronologically and I wanted to continue that. And um, So this episode is going to be about civil rights and the labor and civil rights and labor. And the other part of this period is going to be something called deindustrialization. And I will uh, hopefully record that soon. Hopefully this week, and uh, I will talk more about that in that episode. Um, I didn't really, again, yeah, I didn't really see a strong connection between those two themes in order to kind of fit that into one episode. And there's enough to talk about for both that I am doing this uh, part one. So let's uh, let's get into it. So if we're looking at the at the post-war period. Uh, referring to World War II in the US um, we actually well if we're talking about civil rights so I actually want to take us back to the early 40s to talk about a couple of things so in the early 40s um, in regards to race and labor you have a a, a string of um, hate strikes which I've touched on What what is kind of significant about this, uh, this uh, series of hate strikes or this episode, this kind of flare up of, of racist animus and the labor movement is, so I've talked about Walter Ruther, uh, the president of the United Automobile Workers, and I've talked about the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And um, so in the, in the early 40s, at least in the in the US, in the northern part, in the kind of industrialized uh, north, in the uh, auto factories, steel factories, and so on. So there's a, a, a hate strike at Packard, which is an automobile company that is no longer around. But what happened is um, Packard management wanted to break up a union, wanted to d- divide workers, and so what they did was was promote um, promote about a half dozen, you know, a handful of, of of black employees to to nice, you know, nice jobs. And the kind of in the in the production line guy, the white guys um, in the factory went on strike because of that. So, what is what is notable about this instance is that. UAW leadership, uh, Walter Ruther and, and his, his you know, cohorts, they step in and they discipline the, the racist, striking workers. So th- so typically when we're talking about, you know I've mentioned that there's usually at least some sort of schism, or maybe not, I mean, there's the possibility, maybe not usually, but there's the possibility of a, sch- of a schism between the rank and file and union leadership. And a lot of times union leadership, typically union leadership tends to be a little bit more conservative. You know, the rank and file tends to be more radical and or progressive. But in this case, this was an example of union leadership coming down hard on the rank and file in doing the, in doing the quote unquote right thing. I I believe it's the right thing. Um, of course, you know, there's a lot of, I, 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 scare quote that because it implies that union leadership is not doing the right thing in other um scenarios which is which is complex and I don't necessarily want to weigh in on I don't want to paint that with a broad brush anyway um so the so that is um that is something that's happening union leadership uh cio leadership is trying to address head-on the topic of race so something else that they are doing so beginning in 1946 immediately after the war the cio begins a program called operation dixie and the idea um, is to unionize the south is to organize the south aka dixie so they're they're looking at you know textile uh workers um you know mining etc. These places that have been very resistant to union organizing for uh, racial and cultural and historical reasons that I've, that I've touched on, but the, the South has, has been very resistant to labor organizing. One key reason is that black workers and white workers A. Primarily are not working together a whole lot because this is the jim crow era this is a segregation era um and there are black jobs and white jobs and b that you know when they are working together a lot of workers are racist a lot of white workers are racist and if they're not the bosses are you know are are going to you know drive a wedge in there wherever they can to create these divisions and in the south um it's It's a little more successful in this era than it is in, in the North with this shift towards integration and uh, the, 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 the kind of burgeoning of the civil rights movement. Um, Operation Dixie is ultimately considered a, a failure. They, they just did not make, the CIO just did not make much headway into organizing Southern labor. And, um, and you know, again, there's. It's it was an uphill battle, right? They were really going against the grain, trying to get something started, and they weren't able to get it started. But there was the effort made. Yeah, I don't want to give the impression that it was union leadership just 100% being, you know, good guys. It's, I mean, part of it is, I mean, there's a lot of strategic reasons to organize the South that impact, you know, northern workers and these large nationwide union, you know, nationwide unions and, and federations. Um, you know, we're going into the, the era of, of really big labor and there's a lot of advantages to have that reach into the South, but you know, a big part of that is, is anti-black racism. I mean, I mean, the big obstacle, one of the big obstacles there is anti-black racism. So they, they try to tackle it. Um, So speaking of the civil rights movement, this is a, this is an early example of civil rights organizing a Philip Randolph, who I've talked about, who's the president of the brotherhood of sleeping car porters, which is a black union. He begins to organize a March on Washington in 1941. So world war II is, is going on. Uh, the U S is beginning to, to enter the war and, uh, the troops are still segregated. So, uh, Randolph and um, his colleague Bayard Rustin begin to organize a march on Washington to protest this, and it's gaining enough steam and putting enough pressure on the government that Roosevelt signs an executive order, order to desegregate the military for the first time in 1941. It's kind of crazy, right? It seems kind of late. Okay, so A. Philip Randolph, who is is you know active in the 20s still active in the 40s guess what he's going to be on the scene he's going to be in the mix through the 60s going into the 60s so in 1963 um civil rights leaders such as randolph and martin luther king jr and uh you know other civil rights civil rights movement leaders organized the March on Washington of 1963, where King, Dr. King delivers his famous, I have a dream speech. Well, why, why am I talking about that in the context of labor history? Well, the reason why is that the civil rights movement had a strong economic focus that often gets left out. Um, for example, the March on, that March on Washington, that 63 March, is called the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And it was put together in conjunction with labor. So Walter Ruther of the UAW was, was, uh, was an organizer in, in this March and the UAW paid for the sound system where Martin Luther King delivered his, I have a dream speech. Um, Walter Ruther also spoke at that, um, at that same rally. Um, and this is part of, so part of how we remember, I just want to kind of put a, put a a fine point on this, but the way that we remember or the way that we tell the civil rights movement is it was about Martin Luther King saying, you know, equality and, you know, black people and white people should hug it out and everything's going to be great while really downplaying uh, the socialism of, of Dr. King, uh, his anti-capitalism, uh, pretty sharp, pretty pointed criticisms of capitalism, of the Vietnam War, And the involvement of of labor in this this effort is just kind of left out of the entire story. So I do want to touch on that. I want to point out that the Civil Rights Movement was really a coalition coalition of labor and civil rights leaders. In 1965, uh, Randolph and Bayard Rustin began the A. Philip Randolph Institute under the aegis of the uh, AFL-CIO. So in 1955, the AFL and the CIO merge. In 1965, uh, Randolph begins the A. Philip Randolph Institute. And the goal of this is to you know, promote civil rights uh, advancement in, in the world of labor and to, uh, to use that, that, that power of that coalition between the civil rights leaders, the civil rights movement, and organized labor. Also in the 60s, so that's, that's kind of what's happening in the South. That's kind of what's happening uh, in, in Detroit and, and what is now, you know, the Rust Belt with, with auto manufacturers and, and steel and heavy industry and so on. In California in the 60s, there's something pretty exciting happening. So I've talked about Filipino farm workers. I've talked about the, these waves of a, Asian immigration um, in, in California and in the West. And I've talked about how the uh, the uh, um, the Wagner Act, so the 1935 Wagner Act, leaves out agricultural workers. So you have a you have a history of labor organizing through through the, the you know from the early 20th century through the 30s, through the 40s, 50s. So in the, in the 40s, um, in 1946, again, right after the, the, the World War II, uh, the US government and the Mexican government come up with a program called the Bracero Program. Um, and Bracero means, Bracero is arm in Spanish, I think? Anyway, the Bracero Program was a guest worker program and this is the kind of thing, and, th- and this is, this, this is sim- very similar to the way that we continue to talk about guest worker programs as this kind of like, oh, humane, way, like this liberal way to like, let's let people come here and work and earn some money. But really what it is, is it's, it's part of a, of a scheme to, I mean, primarily, it's part of a scheme to keep labor, you know, rootless and uh to keep that kind of reserve army of the unemployed able to be pulled in i mean that's i mean that's exactly what a guest worker is and that's what the border kind of maintains which you know at force at the the point of a gun that's what a border maintains is that ability to, to dip into this reserve pool of labor where people where the you know wages are much lower over the border and so you can say Hey, come on over! You're going to make more here, but still less than union workers. You know, on the U.S. side of the border, and that's all the that's all the guest worker program is. So the bracero program is just dipping into a reserve pool of labor whenever uh, Mexican American workers are are organizing or Filipino farm workers are organizing. Um, and so the bracero program is kind of interesting because a lot of Mexican Americans. Um, you know are are resentful of these braceros and it's you know on the one hand they're you know they're they're trying to to make a living but they're encountering uh discrimination and, and you know some resentfulness from white americans as well as mexican americans because they're coming over to and taking i mean they the 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 point of the braceros is to take the jobs of a mexican mexican american workers um, anyway so there's there's organizing and it, it is undercut by it's undercut by racism um, you know these kind of institutional uh, uh, obstacles such as, as the Wagner Act and Taft-Hartley which do not cover agricultural workers and then you got the Bracero program but by the uh, 60s by the mid 60s you have um the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee, which is a Filipino farm worker um uh union led by Larry Itliong and they began a grape a grape boycott in nineteen sixty five and you have a Mexican American um workers association led by Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta which more more people are familiar with with Chavez and, and Dolores Huerta and the and the uh, you know what will become the United Farm Workers, but that begins as the National Farm Workers Association, and they become the United Farm Workers uh, United Farm Workers in 1966 when they joined forces. It's a Filipino farm worker union and a Mexican farm worker union. Um, anyway, so uh, what's interesting about this is. It draws on so this is not directly linked to uh, the the black civil rights movement that's happening but it draws on a similar idea right you 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 get kind of inspired by by the civil rights movement you get the Chicano movement you get the American Indian movement Um, you know the 60s this is a time of of you know, identity politics. You know, coming into its own, feminism, etc. And and um, the uh, United Farm Workers really tap into this this uh, pride of of in in their ethnicity. And this is this is something that uh, is fairly powerful and is influential. And they do. Manage to make real inroads in an industry that has the entire deck stacked against them. Um, so I want to. So now at nineteen seventy. So here's a here's a button I have, and um, okay, we're gonna try to get it in focus. It says Nixon eats lettuce, and it's got. Um, this is like this is one of my prized. I'm kind of a, a pen collector. I've got some pretty cool labor pens and and others, plenty of other pens. But this is this is like a prize. Hang on, I can't even. Let's see. I can't get in focus. It will not go. It will not get in focus. Anyway, trust me. It says Nixon eats lettuce. And it's got the United Farm Workers logo down here at the bottom, which is a stylized eagle from uh, the eagle on the Mexican flag. So what this means, so in 1970, um, so so grapes and lettuce are kind of the main uh, products that that the the UFW is organizing around. Um, They're striking in lettuce fields. And they organize what is called a secondary boycott. So this is a bit of a this is a bit of an obscure point, but just to illustrate, you know, it's just kind of like the creativity and the scrappiness. So unions that are covered under the Wagner Act, and then later Taft Hartley. So unions that are regulated by these labor by this labor legislation. They're not allowed to do what is called secondary boycotts. They can call for a boycott, which means, okay, if you've got a if you've got a, a dispute with, um, you know, uh, Home Depot, you're on strike at Home Depot, and you form a picket line outside the store, and you encourage everybody to boycott Home Depot because then they lose business and it strengthens your position. Um, what you're not allowed to do is called you're allowed to do that under the Wagner Act. What you're not allowed to do uh, is a secondary boycott. So Home Depot doesn't work for this example, but let's say let's say you're 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 harvesting lettuce, you're in a labor dispute with management. You can ask people to dis, to boycott that lettuce company, but you can't ask people to boycott the stores that sell that lettuce under the Wagner Act. UFW is not covered under the Wagner Act because of, again, going back to the racism of the 30s. So they're able to call for secondary boycotts and they say, don't buy lettuce. Don't go to these stores that sell this particular brand of lettuce. And part of the the strategy and kind of like in demonizing these this lettuce grower is saying Nixon eats lettuce. Um, I'm I'm assuming this is from 19, the 1970 campaign. Nixon is a villain already, even you know even before Watergate, and so it's like, don't be don't be Richard Nixon. Don't eat lettuce. Don't buy lettuce. Um, anyway, so in the 60s and in the 70s, um, the UFW gets support from the CIO substantial support right so in the same vein as civil rights organizing they say hey we're we're going we're going to ally with with UFW we support your cause cool so something happens something interesting happens in 73 there's a strike in in grape fields in uh, california in and around delano california UFW workers are on strike what happens is, uh, the growers, you know, the field owners, they go to the Teamsters and the Teamsters agree to act as strike So this is one instance, you know, there's a few kind of ugly periods of, um, of time where, where unions will, Act against other unions and undercut other unions and act as strikebreakers. And this is one of them. And this is particularly ugly because it gets violent. There's a lot of big, burly, white dudes who are teamsters. And they come out to the picket lines and fights break out. And, it, and it's violent and people get, people get hurt. Um, this, is, this is notable because race plays it plays a factor here. But the Teamsters, you know, tend to be white. UFW is is Mexican and Filipino, and um, and they actually they sign a deal with the grape growers. The Teamsters do to become uh, the workers' representation, and the the UFW says that's a comp- that's a company union. You're acting as a company union, which is illegal um and they they combat it and and it kind of goes on and it, it continues like that for a few years until finally they reconcile and and you know stand in solidarity with the ufw but this is the kind of thing that this is the kind of thing that happened. i mean these are the conflicts that happen if you've watched this series you may have picked up on the notion that i'm trying to communicate that race is a very important part of labor history it very much shapes uh, not just not just you know prejudice not just racist attitudes or anything but it shapes who does what work and when you've got these whole industries which are you know segregated for various reasons, you know, for, you know, a, a combination of reasons, then you get conflicts like this, where one union, which is mostly white, will undercut, um, uh, a, a, a Mexican and Filipino union. Um, and this is one way that, uh, capital divides workers. And in my opinion, the way to address this is is head-on. I don't think that, you know, I I disagree, if you haven't haven't picked up on this by now, um, you know, I disagree with this kind of class-first, you know, strategy of emphasizing class, because when it comes, if you don't address, if you aren't proactive about addressing, if you aren't, you know, if you don't educate around anti-racism, when it comes to, when it comes time, when it comes down to it, a lot of white workers historically have sided with with whiteness over class. And that's the fact of it. And you see it time and time again. And you know, you can say, well, it's 2021 and white people didn't do that anymore, but they do, sorry. Um, anyway, so that is, that's about the end of this portion of this episode in labor history. And I will be back very soon to talk about uh, deindustrialization. Uh, Thanks for joining and I'll see you next time, bye.